This evening's talk is about the transformation and relinquishment of afflictive states of mind. And beginning with a quote that comes from the Zen tradition, I I don't know from who, but it is from the Zen tradition. Pain, like pleasure, is inevitable is an inevitable and a temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, I attended a a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many or most all of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our uh, discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor uh, at this meeting, said that often his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization or liberation as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization or nibbana, nibbana the Pali word, nirvana the Sanskrit word, being the complete purity of the mind, of the heart, has been described as the mind and the heart of an arahant, a completely liberated being. And in hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was a sense that he spoke from a very deep uh, place of confidence in really truly believing that this is possible. In the many times uh, over many years that I've practiced with Sada Upandita and with Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha often speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom, in a similar way. As our own confidence grows, and as it deepens, we too begin to at least to have some sense that this is our possibility. <clears throat> In its deepest sense, the basic aim uh, of these teachings and practices isn't uh, about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, <clears throat> making physical and mental effort in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat, and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know, we come to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase and others decrease. And we begin to find, at least to some degree, that we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering. 
what's harmful to ourself and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, the wholesome states of heart, are more and more our experience. And they're more and more easily and readily available. They manifest more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of the here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the <clears throat> Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is, in wholesome, what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If the cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom and metta and compassion of the Buddha, the heart-mind of a Buddha, sees only suffering and the end of suffering and exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them and rather than condemning them. And the heart-mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a really great inspiration, inspiring feelings of confidence within us. It can be done. I I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there certainly have been many times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and in relationship to the practices. When I've been able to be really very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and and gratitude of the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. He says, 
This is what the Buddha taught. You can be successful. Once in a practice meeting with the Venerable Sayadaw, <coughs> excuse me, the Venerable Pawak Sayadaw, I went in <coughs> and said to him, Sayadaw, this is just too hard. It's too hard. <coughs> and Pawak <coughs> Sayadaw looked at me with this great kindness in his eyes that's most always there, and a kind of light laughter. And he very simply said to me, No, it isn't. (laughs) That was really helpful. And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are really filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience and also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in the light of uh, purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's kind of as though all of us have uh, skeletons in the closet and the Buddha wasn't excluded from this at all. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation, liberation from confusion and anguish, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains, a long list. There's more, but that's enough to be said right now. And these from our deepest, from our present life's experience showing up and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experiences. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including things that we may have tucked away or hidden away from, the so-called skeletons in the closet. A very important point regarding this is that our practice is not about dredging up, not about digging up afflictive states of mind. I said in another talk some time ago, we're not looking for trouble. It'll show up. You can be sure. (laughs) And most of us really do need to um, discover the skeletons in order for us to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. 
Otherwise, we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes, to uncover what may have been hidden, or that we've hidden from, or maybe that we've judged as unacceptable and buried away the skeletons in the closet that we've in fact been hauling around for often uh, unconsciously and unwittingly maybe for a very long time. The poet and translator Stephen Mitchell uh, wrote his own uh, version, we could say, of the myth of Sisyphus. And I'd like to share Stephen Mitchell's uh, version of this. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness, every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. Very powerful tools, the tools of concentration, Mindfulness, investigation, metta, and compassion, each of which helps us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to really see clearly and to be able to go home. With mindfulness and concentration grounded in kindness, in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. And we begin to realize that the reactive, habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit to, of trying to get rid of it, or fix it, or trying, in fact, to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, that kind of, oh, it's really nothing attitude, we begin to realize that, in fact, none of these habitual reactive patterns serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns with the heart of kindness, that's when the door to clear seeing, or like what I like to say is called seeing through, that's when that door is opened. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping 
into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. So, in that sense, we leave everything as it is. Our rooms, in the sense, with all of the, the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find, we begin to find, that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past. Three years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or maybe just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this. Rain saddens what is kept wrapped up, but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We really can't be free from something we don't see or something that we ignore. The Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunaratna says in his book uh, Mindfulness in Plain English, he says, view all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great, he says. More grist for the mill. Rejoice, dive in, and investigate. And then I have added, within the heart of kindness. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves. Watch our mind. Watch our body. Watch our heart. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits. Conditioned, habitual ways of thinking and feeling. And to change... They must come to the surface and be acknowledged, acknowledged, accepted, and clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. We can't force it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. And we could say that the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of our resistance. Resistance is rooted in fear. And this can be a vicious cycle, vicious circle. And so we practice with great gentleness and kindness and a deep patience for and with ourself in through this process of opening to and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our 
addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj said, Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad, but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a bit of a look now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. And this is the suffering that is inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, and attachments, etc. And yet, so often, we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things uh, as though uh, quite as though they're quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering suffering for ourselves and suffering for others. We grasp onto the past. <clears throat> we project into the imaginary future and solidify both in our mind. And yet life just simply keeps rolling and rolling along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute And that quote that I said at the beginning, suffering is optional from that perspective. Here in Taos, or down the the hill in Taos where I live, during uh, midsummer and early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in the big open sky of the Taos Valley, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, even double rainbows many times. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right, 
And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes very, very quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of... There were the coming together and of a, of a very changing, constantly changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. It's real obvious with rainbows. But not for most of us, not so for most of us uh, with the more solidly appearing and uh, sticky mental and physical phenomena our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us are the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent and unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, and I will inevitably bring suffering. The, gr- the degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it may be, pleasant or unpleasant physical or mental experience, the degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience. This is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, really truly being in the present. This present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment, just as it is right now, right now, right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary or pretended or hoped for or wished for, philosophized about or avoided or ignored. We have a saying in English, that goes like this. You've all heard it. Ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddhist teachings, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. With, in fact, ignorance providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or really true understanding. This experience is what's called the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion which is caused by a lack 
of careful and wise attention. This really is the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So I'd like to now uh, uh, spend some time exploring a few of the specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states, and we'll begin with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal uh, setting, practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, all those different states, maybe such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe I can't, I can't be with, I'm not sure I want to be with this experience, whatever it is, this unfamiliar new experience or this old familiar experience or this strong emotional state or this pain in the body, this discomfort in the body or sometimes this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. We sometimes experience and maybe we feel frozen or we feel caught or just really simply unable to open to and receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. And we've all experienced that. We all know that. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind if we take it up, if we really believe it. It's his fault. It's because she. It's because they. It's because this place or because of the weather. We blame, 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 blame outwardly. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, feelings of unworthiness, a sense of not being good enough, or maybe not just not being enough, not doing it right, not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being right, not being, we often feel not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us, which if we went around the room and asked that question, we'd all have a different take on what that means. Really, all of this is rooted in fear. All of it. So I'd like to offer you another uh, approach to perfection, which is probably quite different from how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. And this comes from the Taoist master, Chang Tzu, his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect person 
is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect person can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment and doubt, blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's kind of lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found that it might not be so easy to look directly at fear. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice meeting with him and fearfully reported the experience of fear And he said to me, well, fear is just fear. Well, when I first heard this from him, my inward response was, yeah, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say. Sure. You know, obviously a great deal of resistance to what he said and quite a bit of irritation in that thinking. I didn't say it out loud, but that's how I felt. But eventually, over time, and with practice, I eventually began to see that, yes, fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice, rooted in mindfulness and kindness in relationship to ourself, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear to be able to come close to it, look it in the eye, so to say, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The the 12th century Persian poet Hafiz says this about fear. He says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. (laughs) As our mind and heart gets stronger and our concentration, mindfulness, and metta muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear. Accept that it is, and know that it really doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, it's not me, it's not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid, static something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions 
some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. And that's totally okay. It may be a moment of very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent, and it's clearly not me, not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. It appears. But we learn to be steadfast. We learn to stand in the fear, we could say. We lose the fear of fear itself. And we begin to see it clearly. We begin, in fact, to be able to see through it. Like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A few years ago, I read a story in National Geographic magazine. It was a story about a woman named Garland, who was a mountain climber. She is still Garland and still probably climbing mountains. Um, At that time, she was 40 years old. At, At the age of 40, she was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. She was climbing with a group. A uh, small group of people, experienced climbers, including her husband, Ralph, who was also a mountain climber, is also a mountain climber. And in this article, there was um, a section of it that really grabbed me. That, uh, each of them, Ralph and Garland, spoke about their relationship to fear. Ralph, her husband, Ralph, uh, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. And Garland's relationship to fear, Garland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. She said when she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. Gerland was a practicing Buddhist and uh, in, the, uh, in the article it said when she reached the top of K2 she took a small Buddha out of her backpack and placed it on the top. Very inspiring article. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship uh, to things, different than most of uh, how most of us have been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned, we could say. And of course, it doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. Because what happens? Well, they just reappear. Putting a very tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities. It keeps the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's certainly not about blindly acting out blindly or blindly believing all of the afflictive emotions that appear in our, uh, in our experience. 
This is kind of like watering. If we do believe them and act them out, it's like watering and fertilizing all the seeds of our habit patterns, helping them to really grow. And again, I've mentioned this already, but something very important to remember is that our practice is not about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. We receive them if they appear. The strong energies of fear and anger can really color our entire experience when we're caught and when we're swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very, very close to our immediate experience. It's a great intimacy of connection rooted in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness practice, a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or without desiring it to be different. For those of you who are in this retreat specifically practicing uh, concentration and metta or metta, uh, these same principles apply, though investigation with the Anapanasati practice, the concentration practice, or the metta practice may not necessarily be as extensive as it is uh, in a mindfulness-based vipassana practice. Unless uh, an unwholesome state really blows up into becoming a very, very pervasive and sticky. So now I'd like to take a bit of a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a, a boiling hot spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, uh, very powerful energy. And so from this perspective, it actually can be quite seductive. Quite some time ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and identified with her anger. And she spoke about really, really liking her anger. She said that she felt strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. (laughs) Really, people would begin to get close to her and they'd feel the sharp needles, sharp sting of her anger, and they'd move away. Consequently, she was really quite a lonely person. And yet she was so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and power, lose the fuel for her life, as she described it, if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. 
And it sometimes takes lots of mindfulness and metta energy directed towards ourself to open to, to be with, and to really clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over uh, anger or jealousy or fear or irritation. As I've already said in different ways, practice changes our mind. And it's about being able to make the choice to transform our heart, transform our mind, so that, in fact, we embody wisdom and loving-kindness. And it certainly is a courageous choice that we've all made, and maybe we have to make again and again at times. It actually opens the heart and gives us strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, to not pretend anything, but to stay still, to be here, to be present in relationship to what is. It's really a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with the very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart and mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year was for two months, and then uh, for one month the second year. And one student um, there who stayed for the whole two months of the practice the first year was a man in his early 40s, a very successful big city businessman from Warsaw, who had very diligently practiced Zen, Karate, and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. This man had grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle, living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time throughout his childhood. With this fear actually still present to some degree in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habits of thoughts and words and actions of that same ill temper. He described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uh, uncomfortable as his Buddhist practice was developing and deepening. And unlike his father and his uncle, he'd begun to see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practices and his interest in the Buddha Dharma and meditation. For the full year following that two-month retreat in Prajekapol and this man very diligently and mindfully practiced metta with just one phrase. May I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. Well, he came back the following year for the one month that I taught. He said, uh, though, when he came back, he said, as the year progressed, his year back at home in Warsaw, 
He began to recognize his habituated ill temper uh, beginning to arise. He began to see it and recognize it sooner and sooner and sooner. And so he said, consequently, he was able to let it go more and more often. When he returned to Prajeka for this month-long retreat that I was teaching, uh, the following year, he was really a radically changed and much happier man after that year of metta practice with one phrase. What is often, I think, overlooked is the, the, the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, it's constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective pretty much vanish. We often feel restless and kind of driven Nothing satisfying. Sleep can really be difficult. And the body's quite tense. With anger, the sense of self looms quite large. And so does the sense of the other. I think one of the primary reasons why anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a very sharp separation between self and other. It's as though there's a line drawn and it's it's not to be passed, not to be crossed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's kind of amazing, uh, simple, and yet difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate, develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed, that went uh, unnoticed, that was not met by a mindful attention, or met with a mindful attention. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. And the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary, unpleasant, or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality or the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind and an emotional tone, and various changing body sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing. 
as soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or or fear or self-judgment or maybe sadness or doubt greed clinging expectation or disappointment it's really helpful to try to just let those story thoughts go just let them drop away i like to say give them no mind these thoughts aren't only the expression of anger they're also feeding the anger they're like fertilizing the angry mind fertilizer for the angry mind so let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations of the body feeling the emotion directly and in itself without the story so what might you be feeling well for instance with anger maybe heat maybe tightness maybe pressure heaviness contraction vibration where is it and very important very very important how is it changing notice the mind meaning at this point notice what your relationship is to these sensations is there resistance so more contraction if there's resistance notice it just notice it give your best attention feel it see it know it is there interest grounded in kindness interest grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body take a look and in the service of acceptance and kindness and patience if the emotion is too strong to sit with do not force yourself to sit with it do some walking meditation you might walk even a bit faster than you usually do bring your attention then directly into the body and maybe also into the breath with your walking or you might also open up to the natural world outside the trees for instance in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky the smells the sensations of warmth from the sun and the air touching your skin really take an interest you might notice the birds chipmunks the small insects the small creatures of the world don't indulge thinking stay mindful in the present moment the immediacy of the present moment in the physical world and in the body and also in the breath in those moments of a connected present moment attention in the ways that i've been talking about afflictive emotion disappears it is in present the ease the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment 
attention is really amazing, kind of beyond compare in a very quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. If you remember the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. And again, from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often taught in dialogue with his students. So the student asks him a question. What is the real cause of suffering? Nisargadatta Nisargadatta responds, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It is the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present, and there's a lot of energy present, the energy that's present in strong emotional states, the energy doesn't disappear the woman who was so identified with her anger was afraid if she lost her anger she'd lose her energy for her life. Well, that energy, pure energy, doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and the wisdom that practice affords us. We really don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, maybe such as power or control or pleasure or status or prestige or or just simply recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed concentration and mindful attention based in kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, doubt, sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire Clinging, attachment, the word in Pali is tanha. When these are uh, occurring in the mind, the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, our mind, is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, another saying in English, we're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, uh, with greed being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis, people blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. And this is all rooted in the desire 
that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, in order for us to be at ease in our life. The thoughts, for instance, that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it can't, that in fact it won't. And then there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desires are not a bad thing. So for instance, healthy, wholesome desire is in fact what brought you here to retreat. So in light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer, a personal practice, that I was told uh, was um, Mother Teresa, one of Mother Teresa's practices. Someone sent it to me in the mail. I changed one word. It's It's a pretty traditional Catholic prayer practice. It starts out, deliver me, O Jesus. The only word I changed was, deliver me, O Dhamma. (laughs) Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. There's nothing left out there. <laughs> Very shortly after I received this in the, received this in the mail and read it over a few times, I got a phone call from a friend, and I said, oh, I have to read this to you. I just got this in the mail. So I read it to him, and his response was, oh, my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) Well, true. We do have a lot to do, in a sense, in our doing-nothing practice. Mm -hmm. But I really find this prayer, uh, this practice, quite inspiring. I think many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and also spend quite an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. Maybe even here in retreat. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting you might have had earlier today or the other day or maybe from some sit that you had in another retreat that you remember constantly, or not constantly, but quite often, especially when you go on another retreat, wanting to get it back. It's the contraction, it's the clinging, it's the attachment, and the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. That's the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is maybe the biggest problem in the world. 
So a really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? (coughs) So a very simple, quite mundane example. Some years ago I was at a retreat here in New Mexico at a particular place that has incredibly beautiful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens. Uh, I was teaching this retreat. And so I was walking along next to one of these gardens um, and I noticed a particular very lovely sweet smell. So I followed my nose kind of to where the smell was coming from and found the flower and stooped down close to it and took it in, really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the incredibly pleasant experience that I was having. But I got caught. I had to go do something else. And all I wanted to do was just stay there and continue continue to experience this wonderfully sweet smell. A thief of scent, that's what I was training, trying to do. So with the next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and to just go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was totally gone. And I was experiencing tightness, experiencing tightness in the body, a degree of burning irritation in the heart and the mind. But I did get up and I walked away because I had to do the next thing. But there was still, as I was walking away, a kind of clinging to this sweet smell, even though at that point it was totally gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it. I was wanting it back. I was planning when I could get back to that garden, imagining how nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens for us so quickly. To sustain and deepen in our practice two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear sensing, seeing, and knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was quite a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. And these are her words. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, with without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables us to humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps 
to the last breath, I hope, she said. (coughs) As we begin to sense and see and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. And for many people, I think, there's often some confusion, some delusion that this state of desire, that this yearning, that this attachment feels good. It's even, I think, sometimes confused with love until we really begin to see it and know it clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning, eye consciousness, eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning, ear consciousness is burning. And he goes on through each of the six sense doors this way. He says, burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred, jealousy, fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a a recipe uh, in a very uh, old uh, inquiring mind uh, journal a long time ago. And at risk of uh, giving you... uh, a recipe that maybe you already have and that maybe you cook up occasionally, I'd like to share this one with you. Some of you have heard this recipe before. (laughs) It's called a recipe for unhappiness. So the ingredients. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter cup or a quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection. And four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with all this stuff. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate the leaves from the stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact (laughs) pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in a food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Then add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. (laughs) Garnished with minced envy and serve immediately. So the same teaching from a, a different way of saying it from the Chinese sage Nan Shin. By not quite accepting because they do not please us, things that are so. We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. Well, fortunately, the Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration and mindfulness. 
Concentration, mindfulness, and investigation rooted in kindness. That in fact meets the experiences of the moment and sees them clearly just as they are. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. And we see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One way, and maybe not your usual way, that you uh, might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is just a very short uh, piece from uh, the Mahayana of the Malakirtri Sutra from the Tibetan tradition. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so, the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. When I first read that, I thought it was great. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not like something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or pretend to others that we don't feel these things. We do. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, what are called, sometimes called, the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through our practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdom. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states can be digested into wisdom. So just taking a moment or two now, looking at just a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self. No self-grasping transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, without, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into the heart of metta and great 
compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great, strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of, we learn to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and mind, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. About 18 years ago, I took my mother in to live with me at my home in Taos, which actually turned out to be the last uh, 16 months of her life. And one early morning at the age of uh, 92, she died in her bed. And within a very short time uh, after her death, as I was sitting uh, very closely next to the bed uh, and very attentively with her body in in the bed in her bedroom, uh, I very clearly saw all of the tension, the accumulated tightness of anxiety and fear and irritation and clinging. I saw all of this just dissolve from her face, with a transformation in my mother's face into a very exquisite face of peace and ease. This experience was very powerful for me, a very powerful teaching and an inspiration for me towards deepening my practice right now, right here and now, with a very strong sense of why wait until death for this peace. Our practice begins, as our practice begins to take a deeper root and blossom, we truly begin to know that this moment, whatever this, whatever this moment is, is just enough, just as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience that liberation is available. Through our diligent practice, this liberation of non-clinging is available. I'd like to close the talk this evening with a poem. It's called Hokusai Says. Some of you, um, maybe all of you, Hokusai was a Japanese painter. His most famous painting is this huge wave uh, with its kind of lapping over, looks like fingers, the way he painted it. And underneath the wave, back kind of back underneath the wave, is a little boat 
little tiny boat with a bunch of people in it. And this is the poem by Roger Keyes. Hokusai says, Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength are life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.